around 1.32 in the morning, I hear what sounds like two rocks being hit together. Just, But it's consistent, you know, and it's getting closer. It's getting closer. And Mitch, he whispers over to me and goes, hey, what is that? Do you hear that? Are you awake? I said, yeah, I'm awake. I don't know what it is. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Paranormal Portal Podcast. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you to all of you who are continuing to spread the word about the Portal Podcast and uh, letting more people know about it. It's been really exciting to continue to meet new listeners and to receive emails and and, uh, comments from them. So thank you all for all that you do. As always, if you have experiences of your very own that you'd like to share, I'd love to talk to you. You can reach out to me at paranormalportalradio.com at gmail.com and we'll get in touch. We've got a phenomenal show. I've got a very special guest joining us today. And and this is a gentleman who is uh, known all throughout the Bigfoot world. Uh, this is a, an incredible researcher and uh, a lecturer. And I, I've had the, the pleasure of listening to, to our guest today. And he's absolutely compelling, knowledgeable, and incredible to listen to. So it is my great pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to bring you Mr. Shane Corson. Welcome to the show, Shane. Hey, Brent. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure completely, brother. I, uh, I had the opportunity to meet you at the Medellin Falls event, and, and I was really taken aback not only by your presentation and the, and the incredible images and, and stories that you brought to the table there, but also you personally. You're just an incredibly kind guy, and, and it was a lot of fun just to talk to you in the brief moments that we had, so... It's my sincere pleasure to have you on the show. It's going to be amazing. But could you just take a couple minutes to explain to people who you are and what it is you do? Absolutely. And, and I'll just say it was an absolute pleasure uh, hanging out with you, Brent, and, and speaking with you and, and getting to know you. And uh, I love your platform, so I'm a big fan. So, uh, again, oh. thanks for having me on. But I will uh, – yeah, my name's Shane Corson. I work with the Olympic Project based out of Washington State here. And basically, I've been at this sort of, uh, I've been at, you know, basically researching and investigating the Sasquatch phenomena since about 1997. I am formerly from Scotland. I moved to uh, San Diego area in 93 and was interested in, in cryptids in general. But Sasquatch always, always had this fascination with Sasquatch. And around 97, when I could get some wheels underneath me, I was traveling up and down the San Bernardino Mountains, up to Yosemite, the Sierras, um, and then, you know, Laguna area, uh, all around California. But I fell in love with Yosemite. The further north I went, the greater, uh, the greater expectations I had for, for doing research. Mm-hmm. And in 2006, I met my wife, and she's from Oregon. And so in 2008, we after getting married, I moved up to Oregon. And at that time, I thought it was in the Mecca, that, that just a wonderful area to really start uh, really conducting some investigations and research, uh, being about two hours away from the Mount Hood Wilderness, about an hour away from the Tillamook area on the coast. And so I started delving into a little bit, um, really honestly talked to a lot of interesting people from 97 through 2011. I talked to a lot of interesting witnesses. Uh, I came across a few things I thought uh, – you know, a few casts or tracks that I thought were interesting, but nothing super, super compelling. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 2011 when I had an encounter that it really solidified the existence of Sasquatch for me. And uh, after months and months of trying to do stuff on my own, I decided, you know what, <laughs> you're not a one man band. This is a group <laughs> effort. And there are investigators and researchers up here in the Pacific Northwest that you need to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, I met Derek Randall's. Um, a co-founder of the Olympic Project, Cliff Berrickman, of course, of, of finding Bigfoot fame, and, but uh, a researcher extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. And, and I started building this circle of um, friends and, and cohorts and eventually joined the Olympic Project in the tail end of 2012 and been running full steam ever since. 
man, that's that's a hell of a laundry list. That's that's incredible. Um, can you can would you mind? And I I know it's probably a tale you've told a thousand times, but would you mind telling us the encounter that started it all for you? That that one encounter. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I'll, to preface this, um, I had uh, been working in Oregon uh, retail for a while, and I had a couple of buddies that uh, were really into fishing, really into fishing, and but really didn't really care about the Sasquatch phenomenon. I had a buddy, Mitch, who's an Oregonian. His girlfriend possibly had a sighting years and years ago, but he just, eh, whatever. You know, I, I'm a fisherman and, and a hiker, <laughs> and then my buddy, Ian, uh, who's a transplant from Boston was, um, not really an outdoorsy guy at all, but he liked to fish. So we decided to go explore some, the Mount hood area, find a couple of high mountain lakes and head out and go do some fishing, you know, a couple of day trip, you know, three, four day trip, sure. uh, remote backpacking. And so that's what we did. We, we found this area, uh, mapped it out and went on our way and ended up in the Mount hood wilderness, um, at a trailhead where we parked with the goal of going down to uh, one of the, the local lakes there. It's only about, I think it's about meh, three quarters of a mile hike in. And that was going to be our base camp to explore the other uh, seven or eight lakes in this area um, that were spread out, I mean, you know, half mile to a mile to two miles at tops. And so we get down to this lake after hiking in with our gear, we set up our camp and we had plenty of daylight left. You know, we, this is fairly early in the morning. So we, we start hiking to, you know, go explore one of these other lakes. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we thought we knew we had it mapped out pretty well, but that was silly because we actually got lost, um, <laughs> got completely turned around up on this ridge line where we could see the lake down below that we had left. But then we got off trail and just got completely turned around. We end up that day hiking about 17 miles on and off trail, trying to get back to the trail <laughs> that would lead us to one of the <laughs> lakes we were supposed to be hitting. Oh, man. It was um, not one of my or my group's better moments. I, I've never been <laughs> lost before. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as we're, as we're hiking along in this area, off trail, we're seeing signs of bear. Uh, we're, we're, you know, lost. We're, we're making noise and stuff. And my buddy Ian, who's uh, not an outdoorsman, he literally brought a pot and pan with him. And so, because he was definitely afraid of bears. Oh, okay. We were, we were all armed. So I wasn't, I've been around black bear a ton. I, they don't bother me. They, most time you don't see him. When you do, they run off. He was definitely afraid of black bear. So what he would do is he'd bang these pots and, you know, every swapped. And then got to the point where Mitch and I were like, Ian, can you knock it off? We're armed. <laughs> we're, we're, we're making plenty of noise. Trust me. Everything in this area knows we're around. So eventually he put them away and he, you know, still being afraid. I said, we're okay. So we're hiking. Each guy's taking their turn this direction, you know, oh, well, let's go this direction. Finally, I just said, no, we're going this direction. And fortunately, uh, I have a good sense of direction. And so <laughs> we, uh, we made it to this, this other lake, this oh. other lake. And, but by that time it's getting late and we, we knew we're on the right trail. We got about two miles to hike back to, uh, our, our original, um, camp spot, the original lake we stopped at set up oh. camp. Mm-hmm. And so we decided, well, we know where we're at now. We know how to get back to this lake. We found the right trail. Let's head back. And that's what we did. We head back to our base camp and we, we set up uh, some more stuff. We cook some dinner. We talk about our plans for the next day. Ian is collecting all this firewood. He wants this huge fire because he's afraid of bears. And I said, well, <laughs> you can make a big fire, but you can make the ring bigger and do not, uh, you know, don't make it so big that you're going to start a forest fire. We're talking, you know, the month of August, which is a oh, hot month. Sure. <clears throat> and this year they didn't have a fire ban, so we were allowed to have fires. So, um, yeah, we do that. We set up, we, we, we builds this big fire and around 1130 close to midnight, we go to bed, <clears throat> pardon me. And so, um, we're all, we're all in our separate tents. We're kind of in like a triangle formation with Mitch close to the lake. I'm in between and Ian's uh, a little bit further, uh, to my right, kind of, um, in a, in a triangle format. And we're kind of in a little bit of bowl. There's a hill to our back and we got the lake to our, our, uh, left and, Around 1.32 in the morning, I hear what sounds like two rocks being hit together. Just, oh. But it's consistent, you know, and it's getting closer. It's getting closer. You know, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 yards away, but it's getting closer and it's getting louder. And Mitch, who's off to my left, close to the lake, he, he whispers, over, whispers over to me and goes, hey, 
what is that? Do you hear that? Are you awake? And I said, yeah, I'm awake. I don't know what it is. And I'm trying to rationalize this. You know, there's a lot of elk and deer in this area. There's no other people in any remotely close to us. And so I was just racking my brain. I'm like, wow, it's like, you know, two in the morning and it's getting closer and closer and it stops. And then I hear what it sounds like bipedal movement, walking through the woods, stepping on breaking branches. And, and I couldn't tell at the time if it, because it, it was fairly loud. I couldn't tell if it was stepping on branches or smacking them off the tree or what. But hmm. I was like, what in the world is going on here? And so we're just listening. And then we kind of hear what we think is like a, a knock, like a percussive sound. But it came from maybe a slightly different direction. So I, I was just thrown for a loop. Wow. Well, after a couple of minutes of listening to this, and mind you, Ian's snoring away. He's sleeping. He doesn't hear any <laughs> of this. But Mitch and I are listening to this. And and then it, that stops. And we hear that that like rock clanking sound start up again. Just and it's it start it's moving away now. It's getting further away, and so eventually it stops. And I just I scratch. We're scratching our heads, and we both eventually just fall asleep. Wake up the next morning, give Ian a little bit of a hard time for not hearing it. He thinks we're <laughs> messing with him. Um, and so that was the extent of it. We didn't really talk about it a whole bunch. You know, we were like, oh, maybe it's elk. You know, this or that. And but back in my head, I thought that's really weird. All right. the nights I was spent in the woods, I've never heard anything like that. Wow. So. It just really got the wheels kind of turning in my head, but we're on a fishing trip. We're not on a Bigfoot you know, expedition. We're not doing anything like that. So we go and we go and hit three other lakes that day. We fished we, without getting lost. No, we hit these other lakes and we're fishing them. We catch our core. We catch, a, you know, some, some brook trout, some cutthroat and some rainbows. And we head back to our camp uh, in the evening again. Same MO. We, we, we build a fire, we cook food, we talk for a while, make plans for the following day to hit two other lakes that we had not hit yet. And we go to bed about the same time, you know, that 1130 hour, 12 o'clock hour. And with the plans of waking up and hitting the lakes. And so we all call tonight, go to bed. Mm-hmm. Well, 132 in the morning, here comes that clanking sound again. <clears throat> and it's, it's same thing. It starts off far and it gets closer and closer and closer. Wow. And Mitch whispers over to me hey whatever it is is back are you awake i said yeah i hear it and it's getting closer and closer and once again it stops you know uh, you know i don't know how far away it stops but it stops mm-hmm. and i'm thinking you know maybe maybe 50 feet away maybe a little less and that's when we start hearing the bipedal movement again but this time it's it's a lot louder it seems um a little faster paced it's crack 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 break 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 and I'm like, wow, this thing, uh, this is escalated. This is this is kind of nuts. And so it's stomping around, and uh, Mitch hears something to his left. I'm hearing something to my right. So I'm thinking, and we're whispering this back and forth. And I'm thinking, is there two of whatever the heck is out there? Two of something? Because he's hearing something off to his left. Right. And the whole time we're just like whispering, hey, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, that goes on for I don't know a minute or two. Stomp, stomp, and then it stops. Oh man. <laughs> and, and you and you got and. Before the call, we were talking about, uh, you know, the how up there in Idaho where you're at, the, the the ground, how it's kind of that it's got that you can almost feel stuff when it happens, like a vibration almost, yes. a reverberation. Well, yeah, all of a sudden, and it's dead silent out here. That's one thing about this area. It's creepy silent. You can hear a pin drop if if the frogs aren't going off or the cycads and stuff. It is just dead quiet. Oh, man. And then wham, wham, wham. Wham! Five times in a row, something smacks a tree so powerful, it echoed off the, the canyon wall by the lake. You could feel it in your tents. And it's just, by that time, I'm like, my heart's in my head. I hear my adrenaline, my blood pumping. Mm-hmm. Mitch is quiet. I'm going, oh my gosh, that was powerful. I mean, just the sheer power to hit a tree. And I knew what it was. It was hitting a tree. Uh-huh. Now, at this point, my, my, my wheels are definitely spinning. I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. This is not an elk. This is not a person. Ian is now awake. Ooh. And he going, he's like, what the hell was that? What's going on? He's kind of freaking out. <laughs> sure. I said, shh, shut up, shut up, shut up. And it's quiet again. And then I, up above us, I hear something from the little bit of a hill to our right up on the other side of Ian's tent. I hear something coming through the trees. And it's hitting branches on its way down. It's coming from a height. And it's coming. It's hitting branches. Tink, tink, tink. And then thud right next to Mitch's tent. Uh, next to the lake, there's a little bit of a mud patch mm-hmm. and I hear this huge thud oh. and I knew what it was. And Mitch goes, you know what that was, right? And I said, yeah, that was a rock. That was a rock. Oh my God. And so now we're, now we're, uh, 
now we're just in complete. I'm thinking, man, we're going to, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking Sasquatch at this point. Sure. Or, or something of that nature. There's something really odd going on here. Ian's freaking out. I think he's going to come out. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. When Ian, um, Ian wasn't armed going out to the woods, I gave him a nine millimeter gun, which was a stupid idea. Oh. But I just was so sick of the dang pots. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure you can do much with a nine millimeter per se, but still, sure. and he's familiar with guns, but he probably, probably not the right person to give one to. And so as he's in his tent, I'm thinking that guy's going to come out blasting. He's, he's freaking out. Mm-hmm. So I said, Ian, calm down, calm down, shut up. You know, again, be quiet. So Mitch is quiet. I'm, I'm going, I got to go and get Ian. I got to get that gun away from Ian before he shoots somebody or freaks out. And <laughs> so I decide, and I didn't want to do this, but I decide to unzip my tent get out, grab the gun from him and either stay in his tent or stay in mine. But just, I didn't want to be outside, honestly. Right. So I'm unzipping my tent and I was just hoping I didn't see anything. I'm looking around. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, 40 feet or so in front of me behind this tree, I see movement. Oh no. And what I see is after looking at it, I see a hand and the, all the, the trees up here are big Douglas fir. They're big, old-growth Douglas fir. And I, I see this hand, this arm, this shoulder on the front of this tree and something that's swaying back and, vo- back and forth behind the tree with its arm on the front of the tree. So I would see head, shoulders, gone. Head, shoulders, gone. Swaying back and forth. And I just, I just sat there and stared at it for – it seemed like forever, but it was mere seconds. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this thing heard me unzip the tent – I don't know if it saw me, but I felt like it was looking directly at me as it's swaying back and forth in ice. I'm watching this thing, and it takes his arm off the tree. It turns around, and it goes up this game trail and uh, disappears. Oh, man. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in my tent. I'm not moving. My heart's beating unbelievably. You know, I, I almost felt paralyzed with fear, and I, I walked myself away from that, knowing that nothing had happened yet. We're okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitch is quiet. Ian's breathing heavy but he's quiet and i didn't want to get out of my tent so the three of us uh just sat there and our tents quiet nothing that was it i mean that thing walked away i didn't hear anything you know uh, uh, if if there was any vocals to be heard uh, after uh, that tree pounding mm-hmm. the the percussives there um i never heard it probably because the blood was just pumping in my head so loud <laughs> right. i wouldn't have heard anything but that was it and so we we were supposed to be out for another day but as soon as daylight hit, collectively, without even talking about it, we packed up our camp, <laughs> we hiked out, yeah. and we went home. We barely discussed it on the way home at all. Everybody, I think, was just in complete shock. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I don't know. Uh, we didn't really talk about it at all. So, you know, instead of spending another day out there, we packed up our tent as soon as daylight hit and got the heck out of there. Almost all of them, he's got a couple really good clear footage videos, one from the Sierras, and these things were watching their camp. And uh, another area originally got his first sighting on a flare. This Sasquatch was watching their camp. Okay, everybody, I think it's time we got to take a break, so don't go away, and we'll be right back with more of the Paranormal Portal podcast in just a couple minutes. everybody and we're back and we're back at it here on the paranormal portal podcast buckle up we're going in i spent i didn't go back out there for probably another month or two mm-hmm. month and a half um, but I got a hold of a, a BFRO investigator. And so we went back out there and we did get some more percussive sounds, but never saw anything. And so for months, I was wrapping my, I was trying to wrap, wrap my head around. I mean, for more than months, about a good year. Uh-huh. I would go out there and, but I never really had anything else happen. But I was trying to wrap my head around why did we have a two night experience? That's, that's a rare occurrence. Usually it's a one, you know, a fleeting glimpse. Mm-hmm. But this thing or things came back two nights in a row. And I, I came up with all sorts of theories. Oh, we were the, the only access to the water, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I really started to think about 
well, what did we do? We got lost. We got lost. We hiked all these miles up on this ridge line above the lake. Mm-hmm. We were seeing bear sign, which some of it may not have been bear sign, mm-hmm. but we were making noise, banging pots. You know, we're being loud. We're arguing with each other. We're urinating. We're leaving our <laughs> scent. We're off trail where people don't go. There's no trails. Oh. So I think in my best assumption is that or hypothesis is that we disturbed something. Uh, either a group of Sasquatch or a, a single Sasquatch up there on that ridge line. And it was like, wow, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be down below. And mm-hmm. and this is my territory. This is where I'm residing right now. And I'm going to chase, I'm getting you guys out of here. And that's right. why it escalated the second night. Um, and, and if that's the case, it worked. We got the heck out of there. <laughs> I, you know, that's, I think you're absolutely right. And, and not that I'm any kind of trained, uh, uh, you know, individual in this, but you know, I've heard a lot of stories through the years and, and it's interesting that over the course of those two nights, the behavior escalated each time. And, in, and I've always found it really amazing that they are incredibly strategic. You know, it really sounds like really complex strategies that they use to try to intimidate people out. And, and your story is certainly uh, follows that same thread in that in one night there was more subtle, but that was still obviously there. And then the next night was just this over the top, you can't ignore it. And God only knows what would have happened on the third night if you'd stayed. <laughs> you know, I, I often wonder, nowadays I would actually stick it out and find out. Uh, oh, sure. But back then, <laughs> no, there was not a chance in Hades. I was not interested because that wasn't even on my realm of thought. Right. You know, like you said, it did escalate, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. The first night it was it was more subtle. Um, and there could have been more than, more than one of them out there. I really don't know. Just based on what we were hearing, it sounded like there was more than one out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously there was paying attention to us. It was, it was, in my opinion, trying to intimidate us to get us out there. It never, it never got so close that, you know, you could get a really absolute stunning look at this thing, but it just stayed back far enough to make itself known, throwing a rock. And that rock was a softball sized rock. It could have hit the tent and gone through the tent and hurt somebody, but it missed. I don't know if that was intentional mm-hmm. or accidental, but it missed. And, and, the, and the knocks, and I mean, it just, it paints a picture that, yeah, uh, get out of here. You, you know, you've overstayed your welcome or you went to places you shouldn't have gone in. So that really shaped that really that encounter there really started shaping my future thought process on on research in general, because mm-hmm. we weren't we were doing we were average people doing average things, you know, just like most of these sightings. They occur. They don't most research investigators don't have sightings. They go out and they sure. they do this or they do that. They have these preconceived notions of what you're supposed to do. And I thought, well, what were we doing out there um, other than getting lost, you know, that could have uh, brought attention? <laughs> well, we were cutting firewood, right? That sounds mm-hmm. like a knock. That sounds like you're doing percussives. Oh, sure. Um, you know, and we were being loud, obnoxious. Uh, we were probably the only thing of in- interest in that area. Mm-hmm. And so that really shaped my thought process. I, I personally, when I go out to the woods, I rarely ever do knocks uh, unless it's like the last day and nothing's happened. You've been out for a week and you're like, I got nothing to lose. Right. Or, or yells or calls. I rarely do that stuff because – I'm more about exploring now. Explore. Get off trail. Make yourself known and see if something comes comes back to camp. Mm-hmm. Because that's where the a lot of these reports and sightings come from is around your camp. And, um, you know, Barcatino, who's uh, based out of California, mm-hmm. almost all – he's got a couple really good uh, FLIR uh, footage videos, one from the Sierras. And these things were watching their camp. And uh, another area up in Mount Rainier where he originally got his first sighting on a FLIR, this Sasquatch was watching their camp. And so I think it's pointless to go out at night and do those. I mean, not pointless. You can have some success. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. come back to your camp and then be observant, you know? And so I just, I'm a daytime hiker explorer at night. I'd like to come back to my base camp and be observant, but, uh, you know, I'm not into all the, I guess the, the TV show stuff. Right. You know, and I've often wondered, uh, speaking of calling like that, I've often wondered, you know, I, I imagine that these calls are, are different uh, and and pretty observably different just by listening to different calls that they must have, you know, taking into consideration that this is probably an intelligent creature, that it's not just, uh, you know, some bestial thing. Maybe it's got some intelligence, but I've often wondered, what do those calls mean? And so when people go out mimicking them, I mean, they could be saying, hey, I've got a rash. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> yeah. you don't know what you're yelling out to them. And they might be, might be going, oh, I don't know. That guy over there has got a rash. Let's stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, who knows? Uh, that's the thing. And, you know, I got a, 
a, a fellow researcher, her name's Rebecca Anslick, and she does this amazing barred owl call. And she can call the barred owl in, the oh. barred owl in, yeah. but you know, uh, but she's listened to barred owls over and over and over and over again to the point where she can mimic them and bring them in. But with Sasquatch, you know, we we have these fleeting vocals, and you know, the OLM project has an absolute library of of really unique. Uh, vocals, many unknown, mm-hmm. uh, very suspect. You're like, what is that sort of vocals? But we don't know what they mean. We can guesstimate. And a lot of times you can't even, even if you wanted to mimic them, you cannot. You just don't have the power, the lung sure. capacity. And uh, so I, you know, and, and, and vocals in general are really rare thing to hear or record. And so, you know, if you're going out there every time and making these vocals, I don't think Sasquatch does that all the time. Sure. When they make a vocal, it's it's for a purpose and for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of giving up your game if every time you go out to these areas and start doing that stuff, it's like, ah, there's that dumb, you know, hairless ape again, you know, uh, <laughs> making all these dumb noises. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, I guess it's it's worth a shot because I think, you know, it's kind of like the same thing as you're saying. You know, we, we learned to make barred old calls or this, this person that you knew could make them or no and could actually get responses and call them in. So I think that's, you know, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to make these other sounds and maybe it'll call them in. And, and sometimes you hear stories where they, they actually respond. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I think it's, it's kind of a dice roll because you just, you know, we don't know what we're doing and we don't know a whole lot about these things. But, of, of course, the work you guys are doing is really incredible. And I think some of the, some of the behaviors that you guys have mapped out and, and, uh, and some of the discoveries you made, I think, are absolutely breathtaking and exciting. And I, and I think it's, it's only, maybe just a matter of time before we actually start understanding these things to a point where, you know, maybe we could find them more easily. And once we really know what we're doing and what we're looking for, but it's, it's pretty incredible. You know, as, you've, as you have done this, has your opinions really evolved throughout the course of your research? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a constant, uh, you know, it's a living, living, breathing entity when it comes to this research. Things are always changing, developing. You're always coming up with new ideas, new hypotheses, new avenues of um, investigating. And, you know, that's one thing about I love about the Olympic Project is that we're all very like-minded individuals from all walks of life. Many academic individuals are in this group, many, uh, you know, laymen, hikers, um, hunters, um, guides. Mm-hmm. Uh, biologists, you know, uh, naturalists are in this group, but we're all like-minded, you know, we're really there. Our goal is not, we're not out to prove the existence of Sasquatch per se at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're just there to collect as much data on something the vast majority of our group already knows exists or, or at least believes exists. Or even with the skeptical uh, individuals on our group, and we'd have a few, there, there, there's something to this and they just don't know exactly what. So we're all about collecting data and upping our ante but data and documentation are the keys to to this sort of research right now because we don't have a Sasquatch in our back pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are working in areas where I do believe the Sasquatch reside periodically. And so um, that's when it comes to Sasquatch itself. You know, I, I don't like to put, you know, it's like don't put baby in a corner. Nobody puts baby in a corner. I don't like to put <laughs> Sasquatch in a corner, you know. Sure. I, you know I don't like to say, oh, it's, it's definitely this. It's definitely that. I'm very open to what Sasquatch may be. I do lean towards a – a uh, higher primate, uh, not not just a regular gorilla or, or, or anything like that nature, but something obviously so unique and very smart, s- smart for its, uh, you know, we have street savviness and, and smartness, but Sasquatch has got the woods smartness mm-hmm. uh, to the point where it's, it's, it's a genius in its environment. Sure. And so I put it in that little bit of a box. I mean, that is not even a box. That's definitely in my head where Sasquatch re- re- uh, resides. Now, Sasquatch, in my opinion, has a lot of human like traits and behaviors, but then you look at other stuff, uh, whether it's vocals, um, you know, like the nest area we're working on and mm-hmm. some of the, uh, other things it, it's, it's, I lean towards more primate like, you know? And so it's somewhere in the mix there. It, this is where Sasquatch re, you know, lives for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's something kind of in between. It's something so unique, but, um, it's, it's, you know, my research and, and the OP's research is definitely, um, constantly, changing to some of what we some of the evidence or things we come across um but with the same goals of just documentation and whatnot and you know um this uh 
if you'd like, I can talk a little bit about the, the nests. Please. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, I was fascinated by your talk when you were in Medellin Falls. And, and if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to go into that a bit. We brought in bear biologists, other biologists. It wasn't bear behavior. You know, the closest thing to date that Derek came up with at the time was that these look like giant gorilla nests. Yeah, absolutely. So it is, to date, the most exciting thing I've ever been involved with in regards to um, Sasquatch research and investigations, bar none. The most exciting thing. Back in 2016, Derek Randalls of the Olympic Project, co-founder, got a hold of me on a phone call. And I was living in Oregon at that time. I moved up to Washington because of the nest in 2017. I was so enamored with him. But he gave me a call and he, he tells me the story of this this timber surveyor that was out on their uh, timberland, um, surveying a, a possible cut for down the road. And basically, he was mapping this area, um, and there's a seasonal salmon creek, and you have to stay, I don't know, 100 yards or so uh, away from the creek, but you know, so that you don't disturb the creek and, sure. and whatnot. So that he was out in this remote area by himself, and he's going above, on these ridge lines. He's going down into these little valleys, and he gets up on this little plateau, this finger that comes down a ridge line, and he sees these this giant ground nest. I mean, just a massive ground nest. And then he notices two to three more of these giant nests and they're on the ground. They're not structures. They're nests. If you imagine like a giant, giant bird nest, but on the ground, sure. um, mm-hmm. the first couple he found, I think were three to four feet across. And then one that was more like six to eight feet across massive. Wow. Now, now this, this timber surveyor, he's been doing this for 27 plus years and doing the same thing. He's related to the timber owner, um, and this guy's seen it all. He's ran into cougar. He's ran into bear. He's seen bear beds, elk beds, deer beds. You name it. This guy's come across it. In his 27 plus years, what he was looking at at that point in time, he had never seen anything like it in his life. And so he got a little weirded out, but he also knew that there was something different about this. So he got a hold of the timber owner. And between them, they got a hold of Derek Randalls. And Derek Randalls is a landscaper by trade. And so 10 years prior, Derek had done some work for these guys. and But they knew. He was into the Sasquatch phenomenon. They knew that Derek was a guide by uh, a guide as well and an avid hunter mm-hmm. and had traversed these areas before. So they invite Derek Randalls out and James Million of the Olympic Project out, along with uh, the timber owner, the surveyor, and a couple of Department of Natural Resources, DNR guys went out there. And all these guys and over 200 years of woodsman's experience in, in being in these areas, you know, collectively, none of them had seen anything like this. They were all blown away. And that day, they found a total of uh, C three found four more nests in this area, wow. on you know off this ridge line on on this finger of this plateau, mm-hmm. and so they were just everybody's floored. They uh, eventually, after talking with Derek, the the timber owner said, "This is this is this is different. This is kind of amazing. I don't we don't need to we don't need to come in here and harvest these trees anytime soon. Um, in fact, we were just kind of getting ready to get the permits and everything, but." We'll hold off on that, and we'll give you guys a key to the gate. If you're interested in studying this, whatever's going on here, we'll give you a key, and, and you know, we'll give you, you know four or five years to to look at this area and see what you can come up with. And so, wow, to date, you know, after that, after I went out there and was just absolutely blown away with these nests. After Derek invited me up there, I was blown away. Derek's doing all this research on what these nests could be. We brought in bear biologists, uh, other biologists. Uh, wasn't bear behavior. Um, you know, the closest thing to date that Derek came up with at the time was that these look like giant gorilla nests. I mean, that's right. really what they look like different mm-hmm. material, uh, but like giant gorilla nests. And, uh, you know, we were just so excited that we, we studied this area for that first year. We went from, um, you gotta understand too, there's multiple fingers coming off this ridge line, you know, spread out maybe hundred yards to, to 200 yards away. But on the, the next five uh, fingers or plateaus coming off this ridge line. We to date or to date then we found 22 nests uh, spread out. You know, uh, in wow. groups, some would be in groups of seven, some in groups of five. In one scenario, there was just one giant ground nest. Uh, so we had that going for us, and then and on top of that, included in that 22, we found two bush nests that were just like the ones on the ground, but up in the uh, 
up in the huckleberry, and that's what these nests are all made out of, all made out of huckleberry, uh, evergreen huckleberry, which is important. But these two bush nests uh, were like practice nests. So after doing research on gorillas and other primates, you know, that's how gorillas, you know, the little ones learn to make nests. They make practice nests. The mothers oh, kind of show them, and the, the, the little infants will make practice nests. And in the huckleberry, you couldn't, nothing could lay uh, weight-wise. It wasn't, you know, these bush nests were not strong enough. Sure. But but they look just, I mean, the same MO. And so, but they look like practice nests. And two of them in, in spread out in two different areas, but in the same general area. And so to describe the nests a little bit more, uh, so I don't get too ahead, too far ahead here, all these nests are made out of huckleberry boughs. Uh, the tips, and in some cases, a little bit more than the tip of the huckleberry. Uh, they range in size from about three feet across to o- over eight feet across. They're all a foot in depth uh, made out of material. So they're, I mean, a foot in depth of huckleberry is a tremendous amount of huckleberry, very um, cushiony, very soft. The uh, all in these in this general area, it's about 90 feet by 60 feet, mm-hmm. 90 feet. But um, all the huckleberry boughs are snapped off. From a foot off the ground to nine feet off the ground, snapped off, not bitten off, uh, but broken off or twisted off or peeled off. And then that material was brought, you know, sometimes 25 feet or more away to construct these nests. Wow. And we had Dr. Meldrum of Idaho State University come out. He's an anthropologist out there, good friend of ours. He came out, um, you know, months and months later after we were doing our investigations to help us collect material. Uh, we had not deconstructed a nest. Uh, we really hadn't messed with any of the nest. So we had Dr. Meldrum come out, and he was collecting samples, hair samples, and soil samples. And we took apart one of these nests to collect the material to look for hair and stuff and take it back with us. And Dr. Meldrum had noticed that some of the huckleberry boughs were actually pushed into the ground. And then the huckleberry, the nest, was actually formulated around that. So you had like a bit of a, like a bed frame, so to speak. Oh, and man. And then these these boughs were kind of almost weaved in and out, and it, they made a giant nest. Uh, but that I mean that right there rules out everything. I mean, bear don't push huckleberry boughs in the ground and then formulate a nest. They usually go up and scrape a um, the bottom of a tree and, and rip the bark off or sure. the, grab the grass around them, and that's a bear bed. I'm not saying a bed. This is a nest. Wow. Okay, nest. So when when he noticed that, I was just I was floored. I mean, I just I'm like, okay, people can argue. If for argument's sake, that a human made these, uh, mm-hmm. why doesn't make any sense? But you could argue that. But anything other than that, I, for me, that's a Sasquatch. Well, the other the reason I uh, really aim towards Sasquatch is we did find impressions. We did cast impressions in this area. We found two, um, the original nest area, the original site that we we were led to. Mm-hmm. The nests were in a V formation, very military-like. In fact, uh, Tom Baker, who's a former Top Gun pilot who's a Olympic project member, when he came out to the site, he said, wow, this is very military-like. Uh, you had a point nest, which would be at the very point, and it's a huge kind of a decline that re- leads down to a seasonal salmon creek. And at that that point nest, the the, the tip of the uh, triangle there, you had these two rocks that were sitting above ground. The only rocks, softball-sized rocks, once again, the only rocks above ground. And when he picked them up, they had score marks on them. So something or someone at some point in time had smacked those rocks together lots and lots and lots of times, clear score marks. And so if your viewers or listeners aren't familiar with the theory that, you know, Sasquatch uses rocks to communicate mm-hmm. or hunt with or, you know, whatever the, the purpose is, a lot of people believe that Sasquatch will smack rocks together. And in fact, I think most wood knocks are not wood knocks. It's a rock on a tree mm-hmm. because up here in the Pacific Northwest, everything's wet all the time. And to find the right limb to hit a tree, it's going to break once and it's going to shatter. Sure. But a rock, a rock, you can use a rock for a lot of things. You could hit a tree with it. You could throw it at somebody. So uh, I, I found that very compelling in that, in the in the track casts and um, the layout, you know, being on this finger ridge. And it's impenetrable. Uh, this These nests are two and a half miles behind a locked logging gate where we have access to it. And then way, way, way off trail. And there's no trails to these nests. You have to go through nine foot, uh, six to nine foot uh, tall huckleberry uh, and you're tripping and you're falling and you're not sneaking into this area. So it's a perfect area. Wow. If uh, if I was on running from the law, it'd be a great spot. Nobody would find me out there. They're not going to find me. <laughs> right. it, it, you know, it's just a great, formidable area. But when you get into the nest area, it's just complete devastation. I mean, just everything's plucked and cleaned. And the, a lot of the huckleberry boughs and, and limbs have been plucked up their leaves. 
mm-hmm. and the leaves would be piled up sometimes in little piles, like either for bedding material or maybe for uh, eating purposes. Sure. So, and then you know, um, you have this this steep decline down to just seasonal Salmon Creek, and then on the other side you have another ridge. You got quick escapes, really quick to get up the other side, and. During we think these nests were made in the month of March. Uh, they were discovered in May, mm-hmm. but we think they were made in March. And uh, the purpose being mainly, I think, is um, you have still have huckleberries on some of these. This area's got such a microclimate. You still have huckleberries that will be in this area through March, and then you have the salmon run. When you get down to that river during certain times of the year, there's so much salmon you could walk across them. So you have lots of protein, and then mm-hmm. you have other berries in this area as far as protein is concerned. You have you know, the huckleberry, the salmonberry, the berry, the Oregon grape. You have wild strawberry, lots of lots of food sources, mm-hmm. and then you have ungulates galore. You just have deer everywhere. You have all the usual critters, raccoons. Um, so it's like for me, this area is really the perfect storm for this sort of scenario to take place. The um, huckleberry leaves, having done research on that, uh, with uh, was brought to my attention by a good friend of ours, Squatcher Metrics, who's on on um, online. You can find him on Facebook or Instagram, and he's a, a data analysis uh, by trade. He, he does a lot of stuff for um, pro uh, football teams, the EPL, the English Premier League in, in um, Britain. But he he we've been working with this guy for years, and he said, hey, have you ever looked or stopped to think about the if there's any – medicinal purposes with the huckleberry leaves and I, the evergreen specifically, I said, I never even thought about that. I thought maybe it was just a food source or mm-hmm. what have you. And they get, you got the, obviously you got the, the huckleberries themselves. And when we looked into, or he looked into the medicinal purposes, well, lo and behold, yeah, they do. In fact, doctors used to give women a concoction of sugar and huckleberry leaves to help them after childbirth to wow. get, help regain their strength. Oh my and God. so, yeah, <laughs> so that, Really got my wheels spinning there because, and, and you know, the brain ticking because I had, when we were led to these nests, we were trying to hypothesize why. I mean, mm-hmm. these nests are not found all the time. Um, and when they are found throughout history, uh, and never in this number, but when they are found, they're almost always found by timber cruisers, timber surveyors, somebody in a timber company that has a job to do to get way off trail uh, and, and mark these areas. Um, they have been found. Mm-hmm. But almost always by somebody in the timber company uh, because they have a job to do. These aren't areas you go to hunt, hike, fish. Or, I mean, they're just you, – you just have no business, nor would you want to go to these areas quite honestly. Right. So my, our, I came up with this idea that maybe this is – Sasquatch doesn't make nests all the time, but this is a special – a special thing. Uh, and my idea was that maybe this was a birthing scenario or a nursing scenario based on the number of nests, based on the practice nests, based on the amount of material – that was made to make these nests. These weren't one night nests like what gorillas do and other primates. These, whatever stayed in these nests did it. I, and I can't guesstimate. I'm thinking at least a week, if not longer. Sure. Uh, the amount of material hmm. and with all the food sources in that area, I, I, I lean towards this as some sort of birthing scenario. And so the huckleberry, when I found out that the huckleberry leaves had a medicinal purpose, uh, including some of the other stuff in this area, you got sword fern, which has medicinal purposes, salal, which is a ground cover out here. Um, but yeah, uh, that really opened up the door to start really looking at, could this be a sort of birthing scenario? Um, and we can't, you know, we don't have any proof of that obviously, but what we do have beside, you know, some of the stuff I mentioned before is we had pulled hair out of this and between Cindy Dosen of Homini Enigma out of British Columbia and Dr. Meldrum and his lab, and a few others, this hair is primate hair. It's primate hair. It lacks a medulla. So if you think of a pencil, that would be the the lead in the middle. That'd be the same thing in the hair follicle. It lacks a medulla. And that's pretty typical, it seems to be, with Sasquatch hair or this unknown hair. It lacks a medulla. It's coarse. Under a microscope, it has almost like a red pigmentation to it, which is very neat. Because a lot of science people report seeing like a, a reddish colored Sasquatch. Yeah. Um, so we have the hair and we got other stuff. <clears throat> Pardon me. So that really painted the picture. And after, so after finding these nests, studying them for a while, you know, and, 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 and everything else that went into, and there's a lot more, but we, we were, okay. We got a Western facing slope. We have a salmon bearing Creek. We have very tall and thick impenetrable huckleberry. We have these nests built on the exact same areas on these fingers. You know, if you were to map it out, it's, they're almost 
you know, you can st- throw a stone and hit the next one over, you know, mm-hmm. uh, built on the very edge of these fingers, these plateaus. Right. Well, let's uh, let's start searching some other areas and see if we can replicate this find in a whole nother area. Maybe, you know, the next ravine over, the next ridge over. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for four years, four and a half years, we did that. We look, we search, and we never came across any other nest in any of these other areas. And it was just kind of a little uh, – we, we thought for sure, based on what we thought we knew, mm-hmm. uh, western-facing slopes and all that, so we would come across more nests, but we didn't. Well, we didn't until 2020. In fact, January – um, excuse me, uh, yeah, January, excuse me, end of February, 2010, 20, uh, partner and I, Todd Hale of the Olympic project, um, we were out in an area, uh, that Derek Randall's and I had started searching just another ravine only about 2000 feet away, but it's just a very thick and penetrable ravine. Mm-hmm. Todd Hale and I set up camp, um, on the end of this logging road and with the, the hopes of the following day, we're going to go out and search this ravine. We're going to go get in the nasty boots on the ground and start looking through this ravine, see if we can come across any other nests. Because mm-hmm. uh, Derek Randalls and I, like I said, a couple of weeks prior, had come across some possible older nests in this area. It was the closest thing we've seen to date that might have been a nest, but it would have been five, six years old, and we just weren't sure. Oh, okay. But we still had a huge stretch to to look at in this ravine. So Todd, Hill, and I kind of, we, we park, and we decide just to, I'm going to hike him out to this area and show him where we're, we're going to be researching before it gets dark, and then we'll come back and set up our camp, finish setting up, and next morning we'll wake up and actually go out and conduct some field investigations and some searching. So I take the, I take Todd Hill out there, and we start hiking out. We're going through the, the, the uh, Huckleberry, and I'm just beelining right to the ravine. I just want to show him the ravine and head back. Sure. And we're, we're going through this stuff. We're tripping. We're falling. We're, there's no trail. So it's taking us a little while. We get to the ravine and just about to descend a little bit into the ravine when I notice a little bit of like a finger. I'm like, oh, it's kind of neat. And then I hear movement. And mm. Todd Hill, just prior to me hearing movement, had fallen and eaten crap. I mean, he fell down and he's cussing. <laughs> and, uh, and oh, yeah, he was, he was pretty miffed. But I'm hearing movement. I said, shut up. Shut up, Todd. Mm-hmm. Listen, listen. And you got to understand, Todd Hale, he's, um, he's been in construction his whole life. He's been an avid motocross racer. He's into that stuff. He's a heavy metal listener. He's deaf. The guy's just deaf, and he'll admit it. <laughs> okay. This thing, this thing that's moving, he could hear it. He, he goes, wow. So I said, so we're listening, it, and it's coming at us, but I can't see it because the huckleberry is so thick. I can't see it, but I'm like, it's coming at us. So I'm thinking right off the bat, there's only two animals that sound that big, and this thing – you know, it sounded bipedal, but I wasn't sure. So as it's approaching, I'm like, okay, there's only two animals in this area that, that are that large. Mm-hmm. There's a black bear and elk. Mm-hmm. I was leaning not towards elk. This thing's getting towards us, and I thought black bear. So I, we both draw our weapons. You know, I'm, I, I'm pointing at the ground, but fixing the point it up, this thing comes through the brush, and it stops. We're listening, and it starts retreating, and it goes back down into the ravine. And then over a couple of minutes, it circles up behind us almost not quite behind us um but almost behind us and i'm i'm weirded out now and he's weirded out todd's weirded out. i said well you know what we're at a lower advantage here let's get up up on the same level as this thing i don't want this thing coming down on us so we retreat back up the hillside and we're waiting and for a while we could hear something moving and then it stopped and we were pretty sure where it was had retreated or left so todd goes to me goes hey let's go back to where we originally heard this thing okay and see if we can see, figure out what the heck it was. Uh-huh. So we, we, we go back down the same path we went. We get up onto this little plateau, this little finger, very reminiscent of the original nest area. And I start noticing, looks like something's been moving back and forth. The salal is flattened. There's almost a little bit of a trail. Uh, and I'm looking around. The sun is shining through the trees. And the first thing I notice when I look up, basically where this thing would have been, is all these brand new, fresh, fresh, fresh huckleberry bow breaks glistening in the sun and I was and I'm and Todd and I are looking around and as far as I can see in this little area all the huckleberry uh, you know from a couple feet off the ground to over nine feet off the ground have been snapped off and broken oh, no. wow. so right then I told Todd I'm like okay we're backing out of here I don't want to touch anything because I already know what we're going to find tomorrow we're going to come back here tomorrow hopefully this thing will come back uh, and we didn't disturb it but we're going to find a nest I already know it look at all we not come across anything like this before uh, except for the original nest area. And so we, we, uh, without touching anything, I didn't want to contaminate the area. So we, we back out, we go back to our camp. I called Derek Randall's 
say, hey, you need to come out here tomorrow first thing. We're going to go into this area. I think you're going to be excited about what we came across. So Todd Hale and I go to bed that night. Um, we possibly had something actually come visit us, but uh, it's on audio. It was recorded. But anyways, Derek Randalls comes out the next morning with his wife, Tori, who's part of the Olympic Project as well. And Todd Hale and myself, we hike out to this area. And we get him, Derek up to this point where we, we, we found the Huckleberry Breaks. And I said, this is where we stopped. I don't know what's on the other side here, but I have a feeling what we're going to find. And Derek's, you know, Derek was excited. And he was excited, but sure. he wasn't as excited as I was. And I was kind of weird about that because we haven't seen this many Huckleberry Breaks, especially when they're over an inch to two inches in diameter. Something with strength broke these things off, you know, uh, up high and down low. Well, as we're traversing through there, I'm seeing what looks like heavy indentations in the ground. Like something big has been moving through here. And as we round the corner to where this thing would have been, which is you can't really see it because of the huckleberry, we see the biggest pile of huckleberry, uh, just a huge pile of huckleberry that's starting to formulate, be formulated into a nest. Oh, wow. And Derek lets out a big yell. We're all kind of high-fiving because we finally came across a new nest, a new nest so fresh that it was being made while Todd Hill and I went out there. <laughs> uh, and and uh, to kind of fast forward here, uh, when we found that nest right then, you know, uh, we were, we didn't want to touch anything. We had, uh, we had gotten a hold of Dr. Meldrum uh, and a few others outside of Bigfoot. You know, people always go, Oh, you always get the same people come out to these areas. Well, no, we reach out to other academic individuals mm-hmm. to help collect this stuff. We found it. I have no business collecting it. Sure. I want professionals. And so COVID hit, we had the pandemic and oh. that destroyed all of our plans of bringing people out sure. <laughs> big time. Wow. So, we decided after about uh, four or five days that we were going to collect this stuff. And so um, we brought, uh, well, uh, one of our partners, James Million, he came out with us and we were going to survey the area, start collecting stuff. He went down to where this thing would have circled around us originally because before we hadn't, we hadn't done that. Okay. So he went down and looking for tracks or whatever. And he came across two hand impressions on the side of this hill that would have been right below us and where this thing would have uh, ascended the hill and circled up behind us. <laughs> and in person, they were amazing to see. Um, we had such a um, lengthy amount of work that we were going to conduct in this area. I decided to get a hold of my good buddy, Cliff Berrickman. Mm-hmm. I said, Cliff, and I told him a story. I said, you got to get your butt out here. We need help casting stuff. And you have a lot of casting material. Uh, I'm a great. I can cast, Derek can cast, but we want you to come in and help us cast this stuff. So Cliff came out helped uh, cast the hand impressions. Um, and then we went and focused on this new nest area. And as we're collecting material, Cliff and I were collecting this material, moving back this, this nest pile underneath the nest, we start seeing 14 inch impressions right underneath this nest. And we eventually, uh, between Todd Hill, myself and Cliff, we came across four or five good impressions that were casted another partial hand impression. And we collected all that material because there was a lot of hair in there. And I'm still sitting on, bags of material I have to sift through to collect the hair. But um, that was really exciting for us. We, we knew that these nests are now probably most likely being made in the months of February or March mm-hmm. with the same uh, same MO, western-facing slopes above seasonal salmon creeks made out of huckleberry and maybe made every four to five years possibly. Okay. Uh, and maybe, and just maybe, for birthing purposes. I actually felt really guilty after – invading this this thing's this thing's space and, and coming across it when it was I, I i today wish in some ways i mean i'm happy we came across it but in some sure. ways i felt guilty because the amount of time that it took to collect all that huckleberry and start formulating a nest and then for me to come in there and disrupt that if it is a birthing scenario you know uh that's it had it, now it has to go build a nest somewhere else and so right. i did feel guilty about that but it was sheer luck it was sheer luck walking in on that exact spot yeah and and I think if it is Sasquatch related, it waited for us to turn around, but we didn't. And that's when it decided it had to vacate the area. It probably did not want to give up its, uh, well, its location, but, you know, all the work it had done in making this nest. So mm. part of me feels guilty. Uh, in the future, I, I may wait, you know, I may wait a month or so before I go back in there so that if there are more nests to be found, they'll be vacated. Right. Uh, you know, um, there's other ways to get. You know, I, everybody wants footage, you know, and, and I've been working on we I think we have some decent FLIR footage, uh, but I can there's other ways to, to, to collect stuff without disturbing something if it's giving birth. I, I really that's just me. Other people are like, no, go in there and do this and do that. And I just I know these things exist. I'm just trying to collect data on them. I, yeah. I'm really not not there to ruin their 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 lives. 
And I think that's really exciting, and and it's very good of you. I I share your your opinion that you know they've they've subsisted and survived in our absence, and so I think that it, you know whenever possible we should should honor that and let them subsist and survive. But I I think it's wonderful that you did find the second site because if anything, it corroborated your hypotheses and at least showed you a repeatable behavior. And, and that's, that's really groundbreaking because uh, otherwise it's just, well, there's maybe tree structures, there's knocks, there's howls, and there's a thing out there. But now you've actually substantiated to some degree a behavior that is key to their, to their lives and, and their habits. So I'm really extraordinarily excited about this work that you guys are doing, and I think it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's really, truly incredible. Yeah, we and I appreciate that, Brand. Really do. It's you know, it's it's a passion of ours, um, and I appreciate. Uh, I really, I, I love your opinions there about you know this corroboration. This, it, it's repeatable. It is repeatable, and I think mm-hmm. that is super goober important that it is repeatable. Uh, you know, if we come across a third one uh, or a new site, I'm going to be absolutely over the moon. But mm-hmm. especially we can collect more hair and just more samples, so it can corroborate everything we're working on. And I'll mention this too. Not only do we have, you know, these these hand impressions, these track casts, these this hair and the nest themselves, and we also have a ton of audio. I mean, a ton of audio from this area. Mm. Uh, so, and to me, some of, I mean, some of the best audio out there. Even some of the the most recent stuff. You know, Chris Spencer and I and, and Todd Hale have uh, multiple long term unit audio recorders out in this area that record anywhere from fifteen to twenty, sometimes thirty days, and. Just recently, we got an amazing piece of audio, I think, uh, off of one of Chris Spencer's long-term audio units, mm-hmm. fairly close to this area. Because I do believe the Sasquatch, they don't live in this area, but they, they'll pass through periodically. And sure. the it, it sounds like a bunch of chimpanzees going crazy. And we're not talking barred owls. In fact, we've been comparing <laughs> these vocals that were heard, and there's multiple individuals, to um, chimpanzee uh, vocals oh. on, a, a son, on Sonic Visualizer and uh, Audacity, visually looking at them on a spectrogram. Sure. And... They're so dang close. There's differences, but they're so close. Wow. And they don't match anything in the Macaulay Library of Sounds. They don't match anything in this area. So we, we got a lot of audio as well. You know, So it, there's just a lot of angles to this that really paint a picture to me into our organization. And it's kind of, you know, it's like I said, I moved up here in 2017 mm-hmm. to work solely on these nests because they're just that amazing, you know, and, right. you know, there's, I mean, absolutely amazing. And, they, you know, we've had enough academic individuals look at these nests in person, online, shared the, the plethora of data we've collected, and nobody has an answer. And most of them just come away, you know, pretty dumbfounded and amazed. Yeah, well, there's no question. What you guys are doing is incredible. And, and I, I'm I'm so thankful that, that you've come on the show to share this. I, I, I hope we can get you back because... I can tell you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> yeah. This is this is really exciting, exciting stuff. So I hope you'll agree to come back on the show sometime as well. Absolutely, Brent. Anytime, I'll drop up a hat. I'll be back. It's been a been an absolute uh, joy talking with you and and uh, and uh, spitballing and all that good stuff. So I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. And could you take a couple minutes to let people know how to stay in touch and how to support your project and and what's going on there? Yeah, so the Olympic Project, you find us on uh, um, our website is olympicproject.com. It's going to be updated. It's a little stagnant right now. We've all been busy with this uh, coming out of this whole pandemic. It's been kind of a nightmare. But uh, olympicproject.com is the best way to follow us. We do have a Facebook page, but it's not something we really, really utilize. But you can find me personally, Shane Corson, um, on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, yeah, Twitter, and all that fun stuff. And I also do host a, a, a podcast with my partner, Gunnar Monson, called Monster X Radio. We've uh, been doing that since about 2013. Uh, it's just kind of a we just love talking Sasquatch, and that's all we do is talk Sasquatch. So we we, we put shows out here and there when we feel like it. Uh, but uh, we, we that that's a really good way to keep up to date with some of the things we're working on as individuals and some of the things we're doing with the Olympic Project. So yeah. Outstanding, brother. Well, it's been a fantastic discussion. The time absolutely flew. <laughs> I looked up and it's like, wow, it's already that long. But it's been an incredible conversation. You, you, you've really got my gears spinning, which is amazing. And I'm looking forward to future updates about what you guys are uncovering or what you're discovering. But once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, thanks, brother. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been a joy. And I will talk with you again shortly. Amen. Thank you.
All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us here on tonight's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please feel free to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Paranormal Portal Radio, as well as finding us on Twitter. We're on Twitter at Paranormal Portal, P-O-R-T-L. And uh, we'd love to have you stop by our YouTube page and subscribe and check out our shows there. we got hundreds of shows, Journeys into the Paranormal Portal. So I hope you check it, check it out, guys. We're over there at YouTube.com slash Paranormal Portal. So hope to see you guys soon. Uh, we'll be back, of course, for more podcasts in the coming days. So we love you all. Be good, be kind, be nice. Take care of each other. Help each other out. Find the magic in every day. And remember to laugh as much as you can. 